0: The most fundamental thing anybody can know about life is that we actually love it. Nobody has ever needed to be taught to love life and to protect their own life. It's instinctive. Biologists will tell you that the most basic primal energy that a human being can have is the instinct to survive. If you've ever been dunked in the pool as a kid and the Nimrod who was doing it held you under a little bit too long. (laughs) Breathing becomes an immediate and urgent necessity. You love life. Everybody wants to enjoy life. Everybody wants their life to be better in whatever way they esteem better. That's what everybody's striving for. Nobody ever wakes up in the morning and says, I wonder how I can make my life much harder today. Now, we've all made a series of bad decisions that have landed us into a harder life. A friend of mine once went out to do laundry in college and ended up in a police pursuit, but that's a whole other story. It was just a series of increasingly stupid decisions. That wasn't the intention. The intention was to make life better by having clean clothing in the hopes of attracting a date and meeting a young woman and someday marrying her and having children. It didn't end up that way, at least that night. But the love of life makes people love the life they have and strive to improve it, make it better, more enjoyable, make it last longer. And the reason that's true is because God is life and He set it in motion. Without apology and without explanation, the Bible begins the explanation and the presentation of God with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth very first words of the Bible. God, who is life and gives life, made every single thing there is. Nothing you've ever known in your entire life, including yourself, is a random accident. You know everything in your entire life because God set it in motion, because God created it. That's the Bible's first statement about who God is and what He does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why we love life. Yes, it is a biological impulse and reality that we deal with every single day, but its origin is not in chemistry. Its origin is in God Himself. He gave us life, and He gave us a life that He intended for us to enjoy and to love. But any time you think about life, the very next thought that comes to mind is that though life is precious, something is clearly wrong with life as we know it. Every good thing that we've ever enjoyed is tinged at least in some measure by some sadness or wistfulness or regret. Even the best moments have this reality woven into them. Even the very best moments must someday end. If you're having the time of your life at a family reunion, and frankly, most of us don't, that's uh, another indication (laughs) that life is precious, but not as it should be. But if you're having the time of your life with your loved ones, and I've had this reflection as a dad many times, I'll look around at my little family and say, This is how it should be. And the next thought is, It can't last. We're getting tired. He's going back to school. I have my obligations, my wife has her own, even the sweetest moments end. The Bible addresses that as well. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we're told that life was made in the beginning and that it was good. Very shortly after that, beginning in barely the third chapter of the Bible, what the Bible records next is a long history of human foolishness and sin and what always follows sin, death. The Bible says, for instance, the soul that sins, it shall die. The reason we love life, the reason we struggle in that swimming pool is we love life and we want to enjoy it. Nobody's ever needed to be taught that. That's why it's, it's disheartening and discouraging that in a book this big, barely in the third chapter, as God tells His story in ours, already Foolishness and sin and death interrupts what was good and precious and right. And everything goes haywire. Foolishness, sin, death. You know that's true. One of the reasons I know the Bible is the Word of God is because it describes life as people actually experience it. It's a big book, and most people find it intimidating. They thumb through it, and they find That it's not one continuous story. They find it's divided into into several different books, 66 to be exact, with strange names like Deuteronomy and Chronicles. Then they keep turning and they find the names of ordinary men like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you just pick up a Bible and start thumbing through it, you hardly know what to make of it unless somebody explains to you the overarching picture. Here it is, life is good and precious, but… Not all is right with life because as soon as the Bible gets started, in the very beginning, the crown of God's creation, which are human beings, you, me, chose their own path. Thought we knew better than God. Someone has said the one big difference between God and us is He never gets confused and thinks that He is us. We often get confused and think we're kings, we run the show, and we don't. That's why life is fragile. That's why parents get anxious sometimes when their phone rings in the middle of the night. Their children aren't home. Life is precious and good and worthwhile and tremendously enjoyable. The f- sweetness of friendship, family life, when it is right, there's nothing better meaningful work, being recognized for your contribution, for your art, for your ingenuity, for your hard labor, for whatever it is that being made in God's image God gave you to do, when that is recognized and flowing, life is sweet, and you want it to go on forever. And the reason it doesn't is this, foolishness, sin, and death. And I tell you, the reason I know the Bible is actually the Word of God is it is utterly realistic to life as we find it, it's realistic, never idealistic. Idealism is the realm of Hallmark cards. In fact, I've given up on idealistic cards at Valentine's Day in my relationship with my wife. She's my best friend. There's no one on earth I love more. So, for years, I tried to show that by buying these big, you've seen them, felt pink and red with big hearts, Super mushy. Some lady somewhere, surely, sat and penned words like these. My love, I would swim across the deepest ocean with one arm tied behind my back, (laughs) hoping only for the privilege to deliver to you the song that was on my lips as I swam. So for years, I kept giving these cards to her, and I was hoping for, aw. And what I got back was laughter. (laughs) And she would say, Bruce, you gripe when I ask you to go to Costco on Saturday. I don't think that swimming in the ocean to sing me a song is in the cards. That's idealism. The Bible never deals with that. It always tells you of people the way they actually are. And if you've taken the time to read the Bible, you'll find that in barely the 12th chapter of the Bible, when God set out to make life right, and as He intended to be in the first place, even the great heroes of the Bible, men with names like Abraham and Moses and David and Peter and Paul, they're all dark and flawed. They've all sinned. They all come short of the glory of God, as Paul himself wrote. The reason is found in the book of wisdom called Ecclesiastes. Here's the high-definition realism of the Bible. Here's the Bible describing life as it is, as we find it, as we live it every single day. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And when it says man, it's referring to mankind, men and women, every human being. This is our reality. This is, God, this is what God knows about the crown of His creation once we decided to walk away from Him and call our own shots. Surely there is not a righteous man, not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. Nowhere in Scripture until Jesus appears will you find anyone, no matter how noble, loic, heroic, loving, sacrificial, no one you find in the pages of Scripture and in the pages of your own life always does what is right and never sins. That's the reality of life as we live it every single day. People check their paycheck, they watch their back at work, they watch over their children, they try to make sure, they make sure that the contract is right, they lock their door at night, and they try to park in better places because the reality of life is it's ruined. It's good and precious and sweet, and we love it, but it's not right. And this is the reason why there's not one person on earth who has always done what is right and who has never sinned. And that presents a major problem because the Bible tells us that God is very different from his fallen creation. Look how the Bible describes God in Psalm 71. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. See, if you put somebody else's name there, the verse is absurd. Your righteousness, O husband, friend, child, boss. No one else's name fits there. People can do right, people can be right, but nobody on earth ever has the kind of righteousness that poetically speaking reaches the high heavens. In other words, it's without ending. It just keeps going and going. The more you know God, the more right you know He is. To make that point, this is poetry in the, in the book of Psalms, the Bible asks a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question whose answer is so obvious it doesn't need to be answered. Mothers love rhetorical questions like this, what's wrong with you? You don't need to answer that. The answer is obvious, a great deal is wrong with you, and and she's just phrasing it as a question to bring you into reality. Here's a rhetorical question about God that cannot be asked about anyone else. You who have done great things, oh God, who is like you? No one. No one else is a creator. See, we speak of creative people, but at our very best, the greatest human genius in the creative arts is only a transformer. He starts with things that already exist in the universe, and he reshapes them, and he remakes them to tell a story, to create art. To create a compelling novel or something that arrests your attention and makes your imagination fly. He makes nothing out of nothing. Only God can do that. And it's not only is he powerful, he's also good. The world itself tells you that. There's a scientific book written about the planet Earth that is called The Privileged Planet because it tells us what we know instinctively every single day. This world that we live in was fine-tuned not only for our survival, but for our very enjoyment. When you stand in front of the Pacific Ocean, or you go to the Grand Canyon, or you go to the top of a mountain peak, you're in awe of the artist and the creator who made everything out of absolutely nothing, and he's as good as he is powerful. That's why the psalmist speaks to him this way. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? No one. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chapters, you see people doing what people do every single day, doing their best and doing what they think is best and falling short of the righteousness of God. The good news of the Bible is, though it records human history and our foolishness and our sin and the enemy that lurks after every one of us, which is death, the good news is that the story of the Bible from cover to cover across all those books and all those unfamiliar names is that the Bible is the record of God's work to save His fallen creation. That's why God calls himself by names like Redeemer. He's the one that gets things back to the way they should be. And you can read literally hundreds of promises across the Bible where God is promising to make things right. God made and kept many promises along the way, and he put it in writing so that you would know it and believe it. And both at Christmas and Easter time, my mind always turns to some of those promises that he made. This year, I'd like to share with you one that made me sit up straight, literally sit up straight in my office years ago when I read it and understood what it was saying. It's an astonishing, shock-calling, history-making kind of prophecy. And what really made me sit up straight about it is its amazing specificity and the fact that it's not even a promise about Jesus. It's a promise along the way to Jesus, because God had promised that through a guy who was born into moon worship named Abraham, he would raise up a nation, and from that nation, he would give the world a Savior. You keep reading through the Bible history, that seems like a very distant thing, because Israel walked away from God, and they were scattered and destroyed and deported, there was a time in Israel's history, you can read of it in the history books, where they were under the sway of empires like the Babylonians and the Persians, and it looked like game over. It looked like a dead end. That's why in the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, along the way to Jesus, God promised that He would reconstitute His nation, and the temple would be rebuilt, and Jesus would be born back into, an, into a nation that had virtually disappeared. And what was left of it was under somebody else's cruel control. And he wrote it with amazing specificity, like this. This is in Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, he's speaking to Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, did you notice a personal name? God speaks of himself as the Redeemer. In other words, the one who makes things right. He says, I'm the one who made everything, and I'm making now a promise about Cyrus. Jerusalem is going to be built The foundation of the temple shall be laid. You know why that astonishes me? That was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. It's not the vague National Enquirer prophecies that speak in such vague general terms that you could fit George Washington or Kanye West into (laughs) those vague phrases that you're using. No, God wants to be known and understood. Before the temple was destroyed, he prophesied both its destruction and its rebuilding, and he named the Persian king who was 150 years from being born, and he says, he's the shepherd. He's going to take my people back. He's going to make sure that it gets rebuilt. And he did. Against his own imperial interests, he sent people and a ton of money back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Astonishing. Nobody can do that. We've got, I think, I'm trying not to pay attention, but I think we've got five people left who want to be president of the United States. (laughs) We have no idea who it's going to be. You don't even know what the stock market's going to do next week. Some guys make a very good living because they know better than most, but what they would tell you is, I honestly don't know. We have experience, we have hard work, we have computer models that give us some anticipation, but no one can ever tell you for sure anything about the future. All we have is probability. And here is God calling his shop by name 150 years before the Persian king was born. Astonishing. Why is that? Because he is on a redemptive mission and he is not going to be deterred As you keep reading across this Bible, you read foolishness and sin and death at every turn until God did the most astonishing thing, which is what we're remembering and celebrating today. When no other Redeemer, when no other Savior could be found, God gave His own Son that we may have eternal life. And Jesus, with the authority and the knowledge of God Himself, sat down once with a religious man at night and explained to him what His Bible meant. He said it like this, John 3 verse 16, the most well-known verse perhaps in the entire Bible. This is Jesus speaking, and Jesus said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have, last two words, eternal life. It's life that God is after. The life that He is, the life that He gave, the life that we ruin, He is perpetually on a redemptive mission to give life back to the crown of His creation. This is the ultimate explanation from Jesus about reality. There is a God who made the world and He loves the world, so much so that He loved the world in this way. He gave His only Son for this purpose, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The most important word, perhaps, that is most overlooked in that simple explanation is the word perish. It means to die. There's that high-definition reality and realism of the Bible again. It's talking to you about eternal life and the reality of death. The reason Jesus came into a sin-wrecked world and allowed Himself to be killed on a cross is because that was the cost of bringing us back to the eternal life that God always intended people to enjoy with Him. Jesus was perfectly clear, very practical about it. In the same gospel of John, not long before his death, Jesus explained his reason and purpose for coming in John chapter 10 like this. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. See, this is another difference maker between Jesus and us. You may find many good, loving people who will lay down their life for somebody else. Many mothers and fathers, I would like to think almost every mother and father would lay down their life for their child. We love first responders as a country because we know that complete strangers are running into trouble to lay down their life for us. That's good and noble and heroic and praiseworthy, but not one of them, not the strongest mother on earth, has the ability to do what Jesus says he will do next. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one can do that. I have one life to live and one life to give, but I cannot of my own strength take my life back up. Jesus said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, Jesus was murdered, but he wasn't a victim. He went to the cross voluntarily because that was the cost of covering the sin, the foolishness, and removing, erasing, destroying death that was the reality once sin entered the human race. Jesus said, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. And the simple, old, but good news that I'm telling you today, that is the story, that is the cost, that is the love that is offered to you. The only thing conditional in what Jesus is explaining to us in John 3 and here in John 10 is whether people will believe Him and trust Him. His life, His death, and His resurrection are the most well-attested historical event of antiquity. Nothing else comes remotely close There is nothing else that so clearly portrays a picture of reality with fulfilled prophecy in astonishing terms, as I've just explained to you, all so that you would believe and trust Him. The offer is very simple, so simple that I understood it when I was a child. And if I'm very honest, I have to tell you, I fought it. There's something in my heart, even though I was a kid, that wanted to call my own shots. I did not want to apologize to God for anything. I told my parents time and again, I'm a good boy, I have nothing to be sorry about. And there was a war that occurs in every human heart once they hear about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, whether we're going to believe ourselves and trust ourselves or believe and trust Him. But the Bible wants to be so clear, this big book that can be checked out and examined and tested and weighed, wants to be so clear that it speaks in very clear language of what offer Jesus is making and what it takes for you to have the eternal life. First John explains it like this. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. In other words, the same God that is life and created human life in the first place, He also gave eternal life. This life is in His Son. This is what's so simple that even a kid, a rebellious kid, could understand it. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Don't move too quickly past that promise. See, people on earth, we will make sure of every single thing, except, ironically and sometimes tragically, what matters most. People will pay with the 20 and get a wad of bills back and they'll make sure that the 5 or the 10 is in there and it's not just all ones and they got shortchanged. We'll make sure of all kinds of things. We'll make sure that we're getting the best deal. We'll make sure that the oil actually got changed. We'll make sure that the contract is right. We'll make sure the insurance is current. We'll make sure we have food. We'll make sure the light bill is paid. All kinds of important but very mundane things that people dedicate an enormous amount of energy to being absolutely sure of. And yet, if they're very honest about their eternal life, in other words, what happens one moment after death that comes for everyone… Most of us will say something like, I hope so. I'm doing my best. I think I'll be all right. I hope so. This Scripture, this God, this Savior, Jesus Christ, is not talking to you about an I hope so life. He's talking to you about an I know so life. This was written to you, if you will believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but absolutely, clearly, personally, have it and know it, have eternal life. And all I'm doing this morning is telling you the good news. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not talking to you about religion. I'm not talking to you about a self-improvement program. I'm not asking you to come back next Sunday and try harder. I'm actually telling you the very opposite. I'm asking and inviting you in the name of Jesus to give up on yourself. You won't make it on your own. There's not a righteous person who has ever walked the earth aside from Jesus Christ who always does what is right and who never sins. That's my reality and that's yours. The only thing that might blind you to that is you'll make the terrible mistake of comparing yourself to somebody else saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And believe me, you will always find many people with whom to compare yourself, but that's not the point. Sin, foolishness, and death in your own personal expression, that is more than enough to put the distance between you and God that you feel and that makes you hope that things will be better and things will be right in the end. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to hope. Jesus came, died, and rose again so that you would know. And my invitation to you is to give up on yourself and trust him. Everywhere in the world this message is announced today. People will leave churches and living rooms and sports arenas. Wherever they heard the message, they'll walk out with one of two decisions. Some people will have trusted themselves to think about it some more, to figure it out, to do better later, or they will have walked out trusting Jesus. My invitation to you is to not trust yourself, but to trust Him that He may give you eternal life. And I'd like right now to invite you to make that decision and we'll do it simply in this way. If you will bow your head, please, and close your eyes to have a moment of quietness to yourself. My very simple invitation is that you will give up on yourself and tell Jesus you're sorry for the sin that ruins life and ask Him to save you. Say, God, I'm sorry, I have sinned. I've made a mess of it. You've told me what to do, and I haven't done it. You've told me not to do things, and I have done them. I'm far from you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Save me. I trust Jesus to save me. Give me the eternal life that he died to give me. There are no magic words. What there is is a moving of faith from yourself and your own understanding to him if you'll trust Him as best you can with the humble heart that He gave you, if you feel your heart softening, that's, I mean, I've been there. That's God persuading you, tearing down defenses, moving past your objections. If you will simply trust Him as a kid might and say, I believe you, I trust you, please save me, He will. Jesus said so. Jesus promised anyone that comes to Him, He will by no means cast out. No one has ever come to Jesus humbly and said, I get it, I'm wrong, you're right, please save me, and ever been turned away. Because it's not your best effort, it's his death and his resurrection that give you life. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. So take a moment right now, if you haven't already, and ask him to save you. Lord, speak to those who may need you. There may be just a few, there may be many. Speak individually as only you can to people about their need and help them right now move their faith from themselves over to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.